0: You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe.
1: Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. And I'm Nordic's Head of Thought
0: Leadership, Dr. Jerome Pagani. We recently sat down with Dr. Manny Patel, CEO and
1: co-founder of Jiva AI. Manny shares with us the difficulties of representing highly technical information to quote-unquote normal people, describes how to design at different levels of a given system, and explains why he often prefers apps like Canva rather than apps like Photoshop.
0: He also tells us about the different approaches to developing AIs, making AI not only understandable but trustworthy, and illustrates what shortcomings in the healthcare industry might be addressed by AI in the future. Let's plug in.
1: Dr. Manny Patel, welcome to the podcast. Many thanks. How are you doing this fine evening? This fine afternoon in London, it's not
2: too bad, not too sunny, but it's okay.
1: I was under the impression you were 27 hours behind us here in the United States. Is that completely possible or ahead? I'm not sure it actually matters when we get to that number. (laughs) Um, Well, let me, let me begin by asking you a question. And uh, since we've now established that you do not live in the United States, I am going to try to translate this question into English for you. (laughs) So I understand that ever since you were in reception, That's the pregnant pause, which I think is what we call kindergarten. Yes. Ah, very good. Ever since you were in reception, you've wanted to be involved with AI startups and that you were talking to your teachers back then about artificial intelligence. Is that accurate? 100% true. Okay. Back in 1981. So in 1981, you were telling your teacher that you were going to co-found an AI-based company And uh, did you say that you were going to get a PhD as well? Was that also predicted?
2: No, you know, the truth is, there's only one reason I did a PhD. When I finished my master's, my mom said I had to get married. I'm an Indian, right? Indian origin. My mom said I had to get married. And the only thing I could think of that would prevent her from pursuing is to say, I can't, I'm still studying. And so I did a PhD.
1: That I, uh, uh, Doctor Pagani, is that the normal route? Uh, uh,
0: I, I have heard the
1: matrimony or matriculation uh, before. Yeah, yep that 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 checks out. Excellent. Well, why don't you tell us the whole complete story of how you became the co-founder of uh, Jiva? Sure. So I, I was I was never that much of an academic. Actually,
2: I, I wasn't talking about AI in 1981. I was actually crying my eyes out because I always wanted to come home when I was in kindergarten. Um, or, or reception, as we say here. Uh, so, I started off well, as I say, as a bit of a non-academic. Kind of went into university as a molecular geneticist, around the time when the human genome project was finishing. So, maths and computing was coming into biology in a really big way, and that's how I got introduced to machine learning back in two thousand two thousand one. Did my masters, as I say, my PhD in that in that particular subject, and. Uh, built the fundamental basis of what we have at Jiva at the moment. Very quickly found I can't afford a house in London as a postdoc. So I gave up being an academic and sold my soul to the devil and worked for uh, banks and hedge funds in the algorithmic trading space, You know, as everyone does. Um, I was actually at Lehman Brothers. I was at Lehman Brothers when it was peak share price the day, and then it started falling. And then I was there when it collapsed, which is fun. <laughs> right. Ended up doing a couple of hedge funds, banks, and then, uh, yeah, then got back into healthcare, advising tech tech startups, health tech startups in particular, uh, and then started Jiva in 2019.
1: Well, that's great. I think, as you say, everyone has gone and worked for Lehman Brothers. Absolutely, everyone. I know, certainly, I have, and 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 Jerome has. So that's that's basically how you kind of came to Jiva. How did you? What did you see as a need uh, to to start uh, Jiva AI?
2: I so we started Jiva in 2019 along with two other co-founders, uh, Chetan and Sarah. Now Chetan is a is a doctor. He's a clinician, uh, owns a couple of private practices in in London, very successful. He at one point asked me to do some analysis of of data, and I I, I gave him a two double-barreled kind of word that I'm not allowed to say on this podcast because I didn't have the time. Right? But therein actually lies the problem. There are absolutely tons of clinicians, healthcare professionals, people related within healthcare and life sciences, who are experts in their field but don't have a clue how to do AI and machine learning or data science. They don't even know how to how to string a piece of code together. Why would they? That's not their that's not their expertise. They don't need to. So what we wanted to do was create a system where people like yourselves who might not be uh, coders yourselves, but you'll you'll be able to describe your problem in natural language on our platform uh, and describe what you want to do. And the system takes you through step-by-step in creating that solution with you. So you remain the expert in whatever you do. Say you're a, a pediatrician and you're trying to diagnose the onset of a collapsed lung in a premature baby or something. And you, you, you don't know how to interpret the signals from all the machines and write some code that might be able to predict such a thing. But you could actually tell our system, well, this is what I want to do. These are the types of data that I have. How would I go about analyzing that data? And we can take you through step-by-step, node-by-node, how to actually do that. So in that, in that equation, you remain the expert in your field. We remain the experts at AI and machine learning. And together, we create something amazing.
1: That's great. I don't know, I'm, I'm glad you've done it. Um, when we were when we were preparing for this episode, you had mentioned that one of the more difficult parts of this endeavor for you, pretty much with any software company, actually, is that the the software company is filled with technical people who don't understand how normal people think, and you have to re- represent some very technical things sometimes to um, quote unquote an, a normal person, and uh, to me that sounds like design and. One, that's one of the things that we like to focus on here: is design and its overlap with healthcare. So, how do you do that? How do you get a bunch of PhD-type people like yourselves to be able to translate the needs of the the common person?
2: So there's there's millions of clever people out there, but actually, relatively few have the tools sort of the mental tools to be able to articulate something that's incredibly complicated in the expert field that they're in, in words that a seven-year-old can understand. And I know you have the, about the mental age of a seven-year-old, so I'll try to dumb it down for you as, as I speak you. about AI. Um, so so, so this, is really, this is a really difficult skill to learn. It is, it is really hard, but actually anyone can do it so long as you understand what you're actually talking about. That's the main thing is you firstly, understand the complexity of your own world, whatever it might be, say it's quantum physics or AI or uh, whatever it might be. And you're able to articulate that and string it together in a way that someone in everyday circumstances can relate to. So when I explained AI to my son, uh, he was uh, 10 years old at the time. I explained it in in a way that He understood from school. He goes to school, he learns, his brain is able to pick up signals from his teacher and that's how he trains his brain to remember things. And actually AI is not that different from that. Uh, It's just more artificial. It runs inside a computer. The brain is the CPU and the memory combined. So putting it in in that particular way is is a skill that i think is is learned it's i don't think you're born with it or anything uh, it's it's just a matter of understanding how to do it now finding those people who already have it is actually hard because there's not that many of them but easy in that when you do spot it in in a in a potential employee you get it straight away so some of our employees will attest to the fact that we you know in our interview process will go through a set of questions like, uh, you know, how would you write a piece of code that does X? And some of them really struggled. And some of them just say, well, we just do this, 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 and this, and this, and explain it really, really simply. And the guys that can do it simply are the ones that actually understand what they're talking about. The ones that waffle and talk a bit too much, maybe they're nervous, so they're maybe being a bit unkind, but, um, they, you know, the ones that talk a little bit too much are probably trying to pad a little bit of Blank space uh, in, in the uh, in the interview to get to a to get to a certain point. So simplicity, I think, is is actually the key there. Making things simple. Like I say, it's a it's, it's a tough art, tough art to to uh, to master. On that on that note, remember how how simple um, uh, the first version of Android was. Well, I don't know if you're, you're an Android user or or, or an Apple user. But one of the first versions of Android was absolutely rubbish. It looked it looked like a, a a really rubbish version of Genome, which which people who use Linux will remember. Horrible, horrible interface. I mean, why would you ever use it? It was simple, but it was highly un, unintuitive. So actually simplicity, whilst that is the key. It has to be. It has to be kind of tuned into intuition. How does a human actually interact with something in an intuitive way? And that's pretty fundamental actually to what we do at Jiva in making AI easy for everyone to access.
1: Well, so, so some groups might give you a counterpoint and say, "Well, you know, it's okay to have the developer be super techy and not think like a human, as long as I have a designer uh, who kind of can sit between them and the and the." code that they produce, you know, might achieve the same effect. Have you have you gone along those lines? Or do you just say, no, 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 we're gonna look for the person who who gets it. So I don't need to have that that intermediary.
2: So I've I've been, I've been on both sides of the fence here. So I I was a deep technical person and as the CTO of another company I was at, um built what I thought was something that was awesome. It was a messaging system for uh, for doctors and patients to to share data securely, and for that data to make its way up to the EMR system, and you know all of those kind of things. And um, I thought it was great. And then we showed it to a couple of nurses and I showed it to a couple of patients, and they were just scratching their heads, thinking, "How do we? We, we don't get it. How do, how do we get to this point or that point?" And at that point, we actually got a UX developer involved. He kind of, you know, did his bit of research and and he said, well, why do we just make it simpler like this, this or this? So, and I've seen that work. I've seen I've seen having a having a designer or a UX person in between to translate between the people who are using the application to the people who are actually developing the application and and uh, make that thing easier to use. It doesn't always work. I got to say. So that hasn't. I've been in a couple of situations where that's just been an absolute disaster. Maybe we just have the wrong wrong designers, I suppose. But I I I think in general, if you if you have someone that understands the user and makes and knows what makes the user happy, right? What does happy equate to? Ease of use. Get to do the things that they want to do quickly without you know clicking three million times on on. Twenty different buttons. Then, if you're going to get to that point, then great. You should definitely put a designer in place to to translate to developers. Developers, are, their brains are wired completely differently, right? They're very logical people. That you know, I talk, talk to my wife. She's she's an actuary. She's uh, she likes complexity and the things that she does on our spreadsheets. She would never be able to develop something that's easy for anyone to use. She can't even explain her job.
0: Manny is is part of the problem that the uh developer and the end user are conceptualizing the problem differently in your in your experience or is it that they are focused on a different end states and and what is the role of design there really where 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 do you get sort of the most bang for your buck
2: yeah so there's there's probably two or three different things happening there that's actually outside of the developer and and the designer and the and the user and actually as always it's probably something to do with management so management have have some idea of what they want to do. They tell developers what they want. Developers interpret that in their own way. They might there might be some kind of exchange about, you know, what is what is acceptable, what is our acceptance criteria for this particular project. Acceptance criteria tend to be very stepwise, very logical, don't tend to imbibe a sense of intuition in the in the application uh, creation process. And then well, then we're surprised we find things that are very kind of, uh, you know, computerized. Uh, I can't really think of the word, you know, you know, you know what I mean? Kind of, kind of jagged edge rather than soft edged type of user interface. And so I think the fundamental thing is in that communication between manager and developer, the designer has to be there right in the middle. So don't, exclude the designer from that entire process. And I understand, like like for us, I say from experience, we didn't do that to begin with because we couldn't afford it. We were a startup, we were bootstrapped, right? So we didn't do it, but eventually put that designer in place in between so that whatever the manager thinks or the managers think should be the solution, that is actually passing through a filter where the designer or the UX person has actually gone out to market. They've actually gone to ask the users and interviewed them about what they think is important and then and, and imbibed that into the application. That's all well in good in theory. I'll go a bit, a bit further, which is a little bit a little bit sort of off piste, but in startup world, the companies that have done really, really well, the unicorns, have often thought of things that the user didn't even know they wanted that becomes really difficult then because actually you don't have someone to go out to market. Steve Jobs never went out to market and said, oh, what would you like in, a, in, a, in your all-in-one iPod phone web browser? Obviously, they, you know, they might have done things in, sporadically, but they, ha- they were visionaries. Right? They created a visionary product. But they understood, critically, they understood simplicity and they understood making things intuitive. And that's why that thing was so successful. No one actually really needed it, if you think about it. We only needed it after we knew we needed it.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's quite interesting. So just to summarize what I heard, uh, management is the problem.
2: <laughs> I can say that on
1: the CEO. And um, if you get rid of management, uh, everything will flow quite nicely. I, I like that. And um, that's one of the key things is, you know, how can, you, how can, you, how can we all become Steve Jobs? We can't. <laughs> right uh, but oftentimes you know your your users might tell you that they they want something but it's different than what they need and they don't take into account how others might be needing something as well right so you know if you ask a, a nurse in the uh, intensive care unit uh, what they need it might be you might get very different answers than a nurse in the emergency department or a nurse that works in an outpatient clinic so that's a that's another aspect that I, I suspect that you have to take into consideration. You ask the question, but then you might have to ignore the answer.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there's no right way of filtering that complexity out. You're always going to get noise, right? You're never going to get 100 people saying, saying the same thing. Entirely different scenario here. I've gone through the startup journey. As part of that startup journey, I have to create a pitch deck, usually 12 to 14 pages of what the company is and does and where we want to go. And I can guarantee, I can ask a hundred different investors and advisors on feedback on the deck, and I will get a hundred different responses because those kind of things are highly subjective, right? So you've got to somehow rise above the noise and just say, okay, on average, what do people need right now? Actually, the true visionaries ask, what do those guys need tomorrow? Because those are the ones that are going to do really, really well, right? and that's a, that's a very difficult thing to translate into design because you can't actually ask anyone and validate it. You have to imagine it,
1: right? And that, that that's great, and it's a great segue into uh, another question comparing um, two pieces of software. Um, and I think you you mentioned this before, Canva and Photoshop, and mm-hmm. uh, those are probably words that most of our listeners did not expect to hear us discussing on our. <laughs> designing for health podcast, but so those are two different pieces of software with kind of two different visions and, and two different user bases. And mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love for you to kind of compare and contrast the two about how you use them and how how you see them being, um, you know, fitting into, into our world. Absolutely. So,
2: so I, the very first time I used an Adobe product was in 2001 or two, I can't remember what I was doing. I was doing some some graphic C type of thing for the department, the university department. Was at. I was completely blown away by how complex that application was. Even back then, I look at it now. I look at I look at things like Illustrator, and I'm sure I'm sure there's you know obviously people out there that use it and with with great effect, right? It, because it's got so much functionality in there. But it, for a newcomer, entirely untrained, it's really difficult to approach that. Now, they are two products, as you say, that are aimed at two different types of people. The people that really know what they're doing in design and have probably been trained to use those kind of things. And then Canva for the more general populace. But when you think about it, I mean, I know I know designers who actually use Canva to do quick mock-ups. Why? Because it's really fast. It's really easy to use, right? And the more easy you make something to use... The more popular it's going to be. So, if your objective is, you know, number of users, uptake, possibly revenue associated with that and popularity, then yeah, ease of use is the way to go. Of course, there's always going to be, you know, requirements to go the more complex route where you have to cater to a more complex audience, but that's going to be a relatively small population compared to the massive one over there. You know, Canva versus Illustrator or you know, all the other products that Adobe have that I have no idea what the difference is between them all. That's kind of the same thing that we're trying to do in Jiva, right? Most of the applications out there are like the Adobe type applications. They're really hard to use, really difficult to put together an AI data science solution for a newcomer, for someone who's not untrained. We're trying to make Jiva like a Canva. You come to it. You don't need to be trained. You just basically start experimenting, clicking, dragging, and you'll get to a point where you can actually create something that's really amazing. ChatGPT, done exactly the same thing. What did they do? They didn't. They didn't add loads of buttons. They didn't add loads of drop downs to say, yeah, uh, let's. See, I mean, you know, there's lots of different ways you can actually change GPT, you know, uh, temperature and things like this. They didn't expose any of that. It was literally text box. Put your language in there and your history on the left hand side. That's
0: it. How many users do they have now? 100 million. Many. That is a is a great point and. Ties into something that we've written about in the book, which is um, that you have to design for different levels of the system. So some things end up being designed on a project level, but then they don't scale within the organization, or they end up being designed for the organization as a whole, but they don't help that organization fit into the larger health ecosystem. So similar to the Canva Adobe problem, and in consulting, we we talk about this as not trying to boil the ocean, right? So (laughs) how do you pick? the level of analysis or level of design that, that you want to aim for to make it maximally useful, not just for sort of the individual stakeholders that you're able to get around the table at that particular point in time, but, but as you said, as a visionary does, they're really designing for a larger group and for a bigger purpose than, than just what's sitting on the table in front of them.
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. It's a really difficult one to answer generically, but let's start, let's start here. So to get to a point where you're addressing the audience that you're targeting first, you actually need to understand what that target actually is, right? So the very first step is, who is my user? Who is my customer? Try to understand who they are. Forget about how how big that population is. Adobe didn't care that their applications would have only appealed to zero point zero 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 one percent of the population. It was that part of the population that they really wanted to wow, and they have. They've completely you know monopolized uh, that part of the market for those types of users for those, for graphic designers and things like this. So understand who you're actually trying to target, and don't worry about the magnitude of that target. Ask them what they want to do. Ask them what they feel is is necessary don't necessarily take that as gospel because sometimes they are not visionaries. They can tell you what they want right now, like you were saying, but they can't tell you what they want tomorrow because they can't see it yet until you show them. So that's there is a mix of your your own imagination, your own creativity in that whole conversation, which comes up with something that, you know, no AI could ever come up, at least at the moment, no AI can come up with a design, an idea that formulates in your mind, that no one else thought of before and you test it and you'll probably do that about a gazillion times before you get it right but, but that's just the name of the game
0: so let's change gears a little bit and talk about ai and what it looks like today and sort of how it's going to evolve so the way that ai models are built today are largely they're clearly defined languages and, and sort yeah. of structures for the models that we build today but we can easily see this beginning to shift into sort of a low-code, no-code kind of uh, AI development. What does that look like and and how will that sort of change the way AI is built and deployed in the future?
2: Sure. So so rewind 20 years. Do you remember around the dot-com peak where all these big companies were hiring HTML developers?
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: Do you want to search for HTML developer in LinkedIn and see how many results come up? Probably not. Got to be almost nothing. Right disappeared. Why? Because people like companies like WordPress or Wix and you know, mm-hmm. all these different types of companies, they highly commoditized access to HTML development through a no-code interface. Right? They made it easier, which actually meant the people that were doing HTML uh, coding before and maybe even made a career out of it had to switch to css or design or something else something else something more related that wasn't covered by that kind of application so i see the same thing happening with ai we're, we're flush with data scientists and ai engineers or well I, a lot of people say that data scientists are actually not data scientists but you know what i mean There's there's, there's lots of those type of people and i think they're going to find in the next few years actually only the guys that are uh, I say guys in in a, a non gender sense, by the way, um, the guys that are really deep deep coders, the, the guys that do the the nitty gritty of of, uh, of AI machine learning at a very low level, I think only those guys will survive, and the rest of them, the, the, the fat will just be skimmed off, and they'll move on to something else, because there'll be applications like Jiva who can highly commoditize the access to AI solutions without you having to write any code at all. It's what happens with almost every technology. At some point, there's going to be lots of people who are absolute geniuses at doing these things. But then it very quickly disappears because someone else comes along and says, well, actually, you don't need to do that. You can just do it like this made it easier. As human beings, I mean, we're pretty lazy people when you think about it. We, we, we always take the easiest route, right? We never learn anything. At school, we're told, yeah, choose, choose the harder path. Choose, you know, it's, you'll learn more, but no, that's not, that hardly ever happens. Everyone takes the easier road because it's easier and, and that, that always wins.
1: So Manny, you deal with healthcare mostly uh, from uh, or exclusively. Let me ask that actually. Which, which is it? Answer it's the question.
2: Most, mostly, mostly healthcare.
1: Yeah. All right. And so being at the at the forefront of AI and healthcare, uh, any predictions from you about where you see healthcare going with reference to AI? We've established that all developers are going to be out of jobs in a couple of years. I think you said <laughs> you just said that. Uh, what about physicians? When when do I have to have my retirement uh, set if I'm a radiologist or a pathologist?
2: Oh, I don't. I don't think you need to worry about that. So, so I think healthcare is going to be the. Well, you're not going to have to worry about that due to AI, and there might be other things, I suppose. But the, at least with respect to AI, I think I think in healthcare will have the highest amount of excitement and hype, but probably one of the lowest uptakes in the industry. And the reasons for that is actually they're they're actually very sound. Firstly. I don't know of any AI company in healthcare or any company, health tech company that is using AI in healthcare that is touting the replacement of clinicians in any shape or form. If anything, it's an empowerment um, mechanism. So almost every, I, I mean, I'm going to say almost everyone, only because I can't think of anyone, uh, but I'm sure there might be one or two. Um, everyone is talking about having a human in the loop, whatever it might be. So at Jeeva we've created a prostate cancer diagnostic. The idea being that we want to reduce the number of biopsies that get done uh, after MRI scanning. And that is all about making the radiologist more accurate in predicting whether or not there is a clinically relevant tumor in the in the scan. Now, at no point are we saying replace the radiologist with the AI. What we're saying is use this as a tool in much the same way you use a DICOM viewer or an EMR system uh, rather than paper. To, to make yourself more efficient, get through more of them, do them more accurately for the benefit of the patient. That's essentially where all of this is going. No one is, absolutely no one, as far as I know, is talking about replacing clinicians in any shape or form. Making healthcare systems more efficient is actually, I mean, I guess it means something different in the US as it does in, in the UK, given that we have a, a national health service, but at least with the national health service, which is basically keeling over at the moment for a number of reasons. There could not be a stronger argument to augment the current healthcare system with automation and AI, supervised with humans, you know, so that we don't, so we can mitigate the risk um, as much as possible, so that they can be more efficient, so they can get through more patients, so they can get through the backlogs and and get it back on its back on its feet again. That's really really important. We're not talking about a similar. There's a similar uh, argument going on in the UK. There, there've recently been rail strikes as well as nursing strikes and with the rail strikes is a bit different they're talking about having automation in trains to drive them without effectively a driver but actually no one is saying you shouldn't have a fully qualified driver on standby on the train just in case they need to do something they're just saying actually this is to make that more efficient these drivers get distracted sometimes that kind of thing right that's okay i think that's okay as long as they're not saying Replace an entire workforce, and if, just to clarify i wasn 't before when I was taking, talking about data science machine learning engineers i wasn 't talking about you know, getting rid of the entire workforce. I was just saying they're just going to get displaced and do something else just like everyone else did right they, even in the industrial revolution, people moved on to something else the, the guys the guys that were working on doing manual work, they ended up learning how to use machines, so humans move on, they move on to do other things, so we 're not talking about replacing anyone. So long as we have that mindset, I think in the next 10 years, to answer your question directly, so long as we have that mindset, we'll see AI being adopted in good volume. I'm not going to say across the spectrum, but in good volume. And I'm afraid to say some of that is because some of the older generation is going out and some of the skepticism is going out and the new generation is coming in. But a lot of that is also because the technology is getting that good. Regulations are kind of catching up in some countries. And people understand that, okay, if you're going to use an AI as a diagnostic, as an example, that's got to be properly clinically validated. If you're going to use an AI to predict bed occupancy, okay, that's not very highly regulated. There shouldn't be many barriers to entry to that particular type of scenario.
0: So Manny, you you said, and I think very rightly, that it's not just the AI that is important. It's the way that like all technologies, people interact with it. Today, that's very manual, keyboard and mouse, but that's going to change. So what is that going to look like in the near to intermediate term future? And how is that going to influence uptake and usage within healthcare?
2: Yeah. So so for taking a step back for, away from healthcare, just for a second, I think the interactivity with machines our human to machine interfaces is just going to change forever the next 10 years we're so used to using the keyboard and mouse we only just started using voice five or six years ago in any big way right i think those things are just going to. i mean i saw something some really amazing stuff just the other day on on linkedin where someone had quickly sort of very generically put together some code that could read some ecg not ecg sorry brain information what they called Waves of some kind,
1: EEG, <laughs> EEG, yeah,
2: and and uh, he was able to get words onto the screen by thinking about certain things. I mean, how cold is that? Elon Musk is working on something similar. No idea how far they've got. Uh, Neuralink, I think, is called. Uh, those things, those interfaces, are going to change. That's the first thing. Within healthcare, the one interface that is never going to change is human doctor or nurse or healthcare professional with a human patient that's always going to be there no matter how much technology you have maybe up until the point we have star wars like type of you know doctors delivering babies who are actually droids that type of stuff um, we're obviously many years away from that but um that part is never going to change so AI, what in whatever shape or form it takes, in, in whatever sub-profession within healthcare uh, it finds itself in, is always going to be an augmentation tool. It's going to be something that either sits in the background and tells the Healthcare professionals as to you know upcoming risks maybe or, or diagnoses, or it's going to be something that is going to hit screening. That screening is a big big thing here in the UK as well. Can we actually select patients that are susceptible to certain diseases before it actually happens, and therefore not cost the healthcare system further down the line? That's a, that's a very important in in countries where there is a, a system that is paid for by by the state. Right, so so those two areas I think are, are the are the main drivers, main, main uptake people.
0: So Manny, when I was an undergrad, um, there were two courses that were were super popular. One of them was called Rocks for Jocks, and the other was Physics for Poets. And the whole idea was to take those really complex ideas that are that are very important, um, but boil them down to something that uh, a very non technical audience could understand and make use of. And it seems like gbai AI does. That, but actually goes beyond that, so you're not just talking about putting concepts in people's hands, you're creating tools that help everyday people in healthcare do things in a new way and and extend their functionality can you Can you tell us a bit about that
2: yeah sure so so i i said I said a little bit beforehand that that um it's important that we put an application in Jiva essentially, in front of users where we have a clear separation of what the expertise is of the user and what the expertise is of Jiva. So you guys are doctors. You guys have a specialty. You know what you're doing in your clinical environments. Jiva does not know this, and it doesn't have to. Right? You guys remain the experts in that particular field, but you don't know how to do data science and AI, and that's where Jiva comes in. And so that interface is really important that we make the complexity of data science Really easy for you to access to the point where you can just interact with it with natural language. You can describe what you want, and the system starts creating the solution uh, with you. But it's really important as you're going through those steps that Jeeva explains back to you why certain things are being done. So as an example, you could create a model. uh, In general, artificial neural networks are very what we call black box models. Very difficult for you to understand what's actually going on under the hood. Now, we might understand kind of what's going on under the hood and how we built it, but you certainly don't. What we would try to do in that particular uh, circumstance is try to make it a little bit more gray box, a little bit more white box. So we try to tell the clinician, okay, we predicted, this model predicted that this was a cancer and these are the reasons why. These are the inputs that you gave us, and these things we think are really high indicators of, of, of whatever it is, the type of cancer you're, you're trying to predict, because we've seen this in history. And wouldn't it be cool if our model could also say, well, out of the thousands of training data sets that you gave me to train on, I can pick these 10 and look how similar they are to your test data set, to your test patient. And because they're so similar and these were all cancer, we think this guy's cancer. And so that having that explainability, that white boxing is really important. That's kind of in the, in the enriched uh, model sense. But also when you're actually interacting with you and trying to build a model, we want this kind of to be, a, kind of be kind of be like Excel, right? So in Excel, you don't know how the, well, you might know, but you, you don't know how a t-test is coded under the hood. In, in VB or whatever whatever it is in Excel. You don't know how the spreadsheet works when you're doing a V lookup or an H lookup and uh, all these kind of amazing functions. It just makes Excel just makes it magically easy. Stick the formula in and it just works most of the time. It's a funny story about that actually by Excel, which I'll tell you about later. But usually it just works. So we want to we want to do we want to make Jeeva like this that the technical magic that actually really doesn't matter is hidden away we expose the simplicity but where it matters where it's actually really important to tell the clinician why certain th- certain things are happening uh, and how they're happening that's the things that we expose uh, so not the you know uh, how, how do how do how do i explain this as an analogy if you have a glass of water you don't need to understand the quantum mechanics of of the protons and neutrons and uh, oxygen, uh, and the hydrogen atoms, and th- the perfect positioning of everything. Even if you could, you just need to know it's a glass of water.
1: I love that. And if you could explain to me why the uh, water molecules bent, that would be great.
2: <laughs> that's a whole journal. Because
1: apparently, apparently, that's important, Manny. That H uh, two O is bent.
2: I, 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 I guess you're talking about. The I don't know. But there I do know there is a whole journal dedicated to um the chemical properties of water, which I found at King's College when I was there, which I found very interesting.
1: Well we'll we'll have to find a link to that because I know our <laughs> listeners really want to understand uh, molecular biology. It's pretty fundamental, I would say, yeah. Yeah. What what is the story of Excel that uh, you said there was a humorous story of Excel and I believe I've I've heard zero humorous I stories say, of Excel. I, say,
2: I, I, say, I say, well it, humorous but it maybe it's not so humorous. So when I was at when I was at uh, when I was doing my PhD um, at UCL, um, I was in uh, the oncology department for part of my time there, and uh, one of the medical physicists was building his. Those symmetry models, so symmetry being you know, how you figure out how much radiology to give to a patient for a particular cancer in, in Excel. And what he found actually was, because it was quite, quite a complex set of equations, what he found was that Excel was introducing a, a tiny decimal error for every calculation. And it was adding up as it was going along. And actually, that caused it to be quite dramatically wrong. Uh, towards the end, he recoded everything in, in R as as we did back in the day. And so it was completely different. So, so those things do kind of happen when you hide away complexity, but I guess that's more to do with testing your technical um, capability more than anything else. I say that's what it's not actually that funny. I, I'm kind of hoping no one died from that.
1: Well, I was going to laugh until you said that last part. <laughs> so, I'm, not, I'm sure no one I'm- did. I'm
2: sure no one did. They were all terminal. Don't worry about it. Wow,
1: well, Manny, you're really taking this <laughs> to a dark place. <laughs> Right. Well, um, let's talk about something a little bit more uh, with a, ha- a happier ending. You had a daughter who was born several months premature and found herself uh, along with her in the neonatal intensive care unit at, at the hospital. And one of the things that you've mentioned in the past is that you heard a lot of, of beeping noises. And and sometimes the the you know what nurses did in response to those beeping noises was was a little upsetting. So, yeah, tell us that story and and what what were the takeaways for you? The the whole the whole
2: birth of my daughter is a, is, a, is a very long story. I won't take you to, to, through that one, but it was, uh, it, it was a bit of a traumatic experience, obviously for both me and my wife, being you know her being born three months early, uh, being this tiny little thing, kind of looked like this, uh, you know you know how birds like baby birds fall out of a nest and they're kind of like this with their their hands out. Um, That's what's kind of what she looked like. Um, But what was actually really distressing, at least for new parents, is you see um, all these kids in, I can't remember if it was Nicky or Skaboo. I can't remember uh, the difference. But anyway, in this department, you have these six or seven kids in each ward in the incubator. And this is bleeping sounds, really loud. Everything's like bleeping and you got these all these machines connected up to the connected up to the incubator and connected up to my daughter and you know the chest and the the um the oximeter and you know all that kind of stuff everything's beeping. even when her her oxygen levels were kept they kept on dipping below 80 percent right and we're told that was really bad we had no idea what was good or bad um I mean it was still orange on the screen so I thought orange orange is not as bad as red so it's, it's not too bad but actually 80 is bad so so um but all they do is just press the button silence it that's kept on silencing kept on silencing these these alarms Now, what's the point of setting an alarm at a certain point you know it goes below 70 or 75 or whatever it is I can't remember what the threshold threshold was and it just alarms for no intelligent reason what if you were temporarily below the threshold and came back up again right does is that an alarm uh, is that a, is that a positive signal and there's a lot of data science there there's a lot of well there's two things there's a lot of data science signal processing there. But there's also a lot of design flaw there. I think that what happens when there's actually something that's really important, something's alarming, and these nurses—I mean, they do a great job, absolutely fantastic job—but they get tired, they are humans, and at some point, they're just going to on you know on autopilot, they're going to switch something off without realizing it's actually important. And that's what really scared me, is that when how how can how is it that in uh, when was it, 2014, how is it that we're at that point where we can't even think of something more intelligent than just beep when it goes through, through a threshold? That's a design flaw for me. Another application, I think, of of AI machine learning in that area, although I say it as a parent, probably a, a, a risky one. You have to get that one really right. Alarm when it's actually only useful to know.
1: Yeah, to your point, really, when you talk about risk, it's it's more complicated. Because it's, it's uh, is the risk, well, it can never be wrong, or is the risk, it can only be wrong less frequently or less importantly than, than when, uh, you know, versus a human. yeah And I think the same is, the same arguments made about um, self-driving cars. Can they have zero accidents or mm. are they allowed to have accidents, but far, far fewer than humans would have? Is that okay?
2: Have you, have you heard of the da- Daily Mail test? I have not. Okay, I suppose it's a British thing because the Daily Mail is a British newspaper. But Daily Mail, popularly known as a very accurate <laughs> uh, newspaper in in the UK, a little bit, you know, uh, right wing, a little bit anti uh, anti immigration, blah 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 blah, and they often print stuff that gets people into trouble, especially politicians um, of all of all sides. And uh, so we say, does this pass the daily mail test? And, and self-driving cars is, is probably one of them, right? Does it pass a daily mail test? Is it, is it that you can have a car that is statistically much better than a human uh, at avoiding accidents, but when that when it's that one accident that happens, that will blow up in the media, will blow up. And you could effectively kill off an innovation because of one incident, even though the truth is that it's statistically better. I think that's more of a societal thing for us that we have we have to adhere to a little bit more to the truth and and actual fact rather than uh, anecdotal evidence. That's basically the, the the Daily Mail test. Does it pass
0: it? Yeah. We've talked a lot about design today, Manny, and um, we like to end the podcast the same way with everyone and ask them about design that they encounter in their everyday lives. So, what are two or three things, and they can be outside of healthcare. Uh, but two or three things that are so well designed that they bring you joy to interact with.
2: Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little bit geeky and a little bit esoteric for, my, for for the two that I I can think of. So, the first one is one that I'm pretty sure no one who's listening has ever interacted with, but I I used to interact with every day of my life. Uh, it was actually a programming language called Q, um, and It was, uh, you know, this is not, you know, it's not designed in the traditional sense of that you don't see, you know, something nice and pretty on the screen. In fact, if you've never been trained in it, it looks absolutely awful and you'll feel like blowing your brains out when you're trying to read it. But um, it is such a well designed language, designed to do exactly what it's supposed to be doing fast computation, vector mathematics, um, or vector logic, I should say, um, and in ways that are that are fully functional. So they, you know, you, you could, it was funny the, the it was a relatively small community, let's say, because it's a relatively niche language. And, uh, um, there was an internal competition, I say internal, but global, uh, of which there was only probably only hundred people, but there was a competition of who could write the shortest Sudoku solver, um, in, in the language. And someone got to 37 characters. And that, that's how amazing this language is, is that you can, you can write an entire Sudoku solver, a program, in 37 characters. That is awesome programmatic design. It's not the type of design you guys are used to, so I'm cheating a little bit. But, um, but uh, if, for a programmer, that was an absolute delight, a language to, to, to work with, that you can do such amazing things. That was really geeky, I'm sorry.
1: I love that. <laughs> I love <laughs> um, that.
2: <laughs> the the second one i only have two but the second one is also a bit of a che- bit of cheating again not not human made design um i'm going to say design of ant colony behavior stick with me on this one it does go somewhere just think about you see ants ant colonies all the time right they 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 they're all over your kitchen and you kill them all and you know it's like you never really think about what's actually happening under the hood Ants have maybe three, four, or five, depending on the species, um, different types of uh, types of ants inside that colony. Actually, each ant only really interacts with its environment. It doesn't know what's happening, you know, miles away. It, it can only detect the chemical signals in its immediate vicinity or what's in the air. Um, and therefore it only operates on a very small Set of rules. So if you were to computerize this, you could say you're going to have a very small set of rules with a very limited sense of, uh, uh, very limited set of sense organs, if you like, sense of smell essentially. And from that, you can create something so organized as a colony where it builds ventilation systems, it builds uh, defense mechanisms it even puts a graveyard on one side on diametrically opposite sides of where it actually puts its food uh, where it harvests it. It always puts the queen and its uh, and its eggs somewhere in the center uh, down below where it's nice and cool at, at a very precise temperature. All of these things come out because there are millions of agents that are interacting with a very limited set of rules that is really interesting for me because if you think about it, you could create very complex systems in, in machines, in computers, in software, by understanding how to create those rules. That design that nature has there, I think that, that just blows me away. That nature was able to able to come up, I say able to come up, you know what I mean, evolved to, co- to, to create a design that was that beautiful.
1: You're you're making me tear up uh in, in talking about uh, the Q programming language and ant colonies.
2: I'm gonna make you cry even more now. Look, Liverpool.
1: Oh wow. <laughs> wow. We really wanted to get through this um through this episode without any uh English football references, but we were unable to do so. And um uh for the record, I uh, acknowledge that you're the team that you support, Liverpool Football Club. Um, is uh, slightly better than the the team I support, Tottenham Hotspur, and uh, that's on tape now, and that will never go away. Thank you. And uh, uh, but it will change uh, next in in the fall when we'll, when we start playing again. Let's see. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Doctor Manny Patel, for for joining us and talking about uh, healthcare and AI and design. We really appreciated it.
2: Thanks so much for having me, guys. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information about Jiva, head to jiva.ai. That's J-I-V-A A-I. Check back for more
0: episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well.